0: Um, It's always awkward starting these because we talk a little bit beforehand, but this is Sean O'Brien. I'd like to welcome you on board. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, I appreciate your time. Uh, I know you're busy, so it's really appreciated. Um, Would you like to introduce yourself and tell my audience who you are? Sure.
1: Um, So I am Sean O'Brien. I'm a lecturer at Yale Law School. Um, We do cybersecurity, which is a very fun class and we can talk about a little bit. Um, I also founded Yale Privacy Lab, um, which does digital self-defense and some other very cool stuff. Um, I run something called Privacy Safe, where we're now focusing on remote education and IOT for healthcare. All of that's on free and open source software. And um, yeah, I do some other cool things, but basically I always try to keep
0: my work on the edge of privacy and technology. Awesome. And um, I'm going through your resume, and I see that you're doing most of these things all at the same time. So how, how do you handle that all?
1: <laughs> well, I think you know as well, you know, working on so much stuff. Um, I try my best to juggle things. What, what else can I say? I I, um, I like to joke that I don't sleep very well, but uh, I've been doing that a lot more often with COVID here. So. <laughs>
0: Sleeping well during COVID or not well? Uh,
1: sleeping well. <laughs> I might be having nightmares about the way the world's uh, uh, shaping up, but that's about <laughs> it.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's interesting. Uh, I, I guess the lockdown for me is kind of kind of a, a blessing and the curse. Uh, it's a curse because it's just so boring. But the blessing is uh, I can focus just completely on work. And that's the one perk, I guess. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I've, I've heard from people who are, you know, working on projects or, or workaholics even that it, it's it's that thing of diving into the work rather than looking around and
0: seeing what's going on. Um, and that's happening to me a little bit, too, I think. so. Yeah, it's important to just go outside and walk around one, one here and then. <laughs> so I have a few questions, um, I guess 10 in total just by chance. And um, I don't want to make this feel too scripted, so I don't want to just ask a question and you answer. So I'd like these to be somewhat discussion-based. But at the same time, I think the questions keep the flow going. So um, let's just start talking about privacy. And when I read off, you're going to see I'm reading to the left here. Don't mind me. Um, Privacy, how'd you get into it? Um, I think that everyone has kind of a unique story where they start falling in love with their, their passion for privacy. So what's your story behind all that?
1: Sure. Um, So I think uh, in a very real sense, um, when I first got started using the internet, um, I started thinking about these things. Um, I think um, for me, privacy is about autonomy and it's about... Identity really um, in a lot of senses. Um, so I grew up in the uh, 90s uh, by the late 90s um, What was I 14 or 15 years old? I was making crappy websites on GeoCities, etc and part of that experience of putting yourself out there on the internet um, Making part of your life public or the things you want people to see public um, makes you think a little bit about identity Um, and, you know, I had a lot of fun, wacky websites where, you know, I would take on a character or something like that. So, um, the idea of being able to run something behind the scenes and be a different person than you're showing the rest of the world already had me thinking about identity. I don't think I really got into thinking about, you know, um, the perils of technology and the things that we should really be worried about as far as, um, technology's ability to identify and categorize and control us um, until college. So um, I don't know if I have a specific story, but, you know, I got into the tech uh, liberation movement or whatever people want to call it um, with a lot of other people in the mid-2000s. Got very interested in decentralized technology, um, got very interested in what social media could do to us. Um, so I was a very early adopter of Facebook, for example. Um, it came through the Northeast from, um, you know, Harvard and universities like that and then was offered, you know, at my university at the time, which was UConn. And, uh, was very gung ho about it. This is very cool, you know. It's a community, you know, because I always have this community idea that the internet has that power. Um, but then when I started learning what was going on behind the scenes, I think that's when I really got got into the 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 worry part <laughs> of the flip side of the coin. Um, so yeah, I ran um, a, a decentralized uh, social node, something called Friendica, which some folks may be aware of um, at the time. Uh, I called that Fuge book, it was the (laughs) anti-Facebook, tried to get my friends into it, et cetera, et cetera. And I was just always working on sort of wacky projects like that. the big catalyzing moment, I think, for, for me and for a lot of people, where we sort of got more serious, um, was the Edward Snowden uh, disclosures in 2013. And um, all of a sudden, I had people say to me, oh, that's stuff you were talking about, you know, that stuff that I was maybe being annoying at parties talking about. You're not actually crazy. <laughs> you know, suddenly that <laughs> mattered, right? Um, and uh, activist groups were starting to get it. You know, you had Occupy and stuff like that, um, you know, shortly before that and then through the through this known disclosures and um, so I started teaching classes about it, I started showing people um, ways they could be more private and secure online, um, potentially anonymous where I could um, and yeah, that's basically how I got into it.
0: That's sweet and so you were an early adopter of Facebook, you said that uh, you kind of already started thinking about the privacy implications of Facebook. Was this kind of before Facebook was even known for having bad privacy? Because I remember when I got my first iPhone, I got the iPhone 4. I don't think I ever heard about privacy before. But also, I was in middle school. So I don't know if that's something that just wasn't talked about or if it's because I was in middle school, because I never even heard about Edward Snowden until, like, early high school. Way long, way past after the, um, the actual revelations. So I guess some insight there from someone who actually remembers... (laughs)
1: So, um, when you're a web developer, right, and like I said, I was doing crappy websites, but I quickly transitioned into doing, you know, real web work, and I did that throughout college and and into graduate school, Um, when you're a web developer, you know the the amount of information you can get from a user, right? Um, And uh, you start to become aware of what you can do with that information. And um, I remember, for example, one of the things we used to talk about with JavaScript, we'd be like, well, you know, you can do a cookie where you you get the browser string, right? And then you ask the user for information like their zip code, and then you can guess, you know, within a certain amount of, uh, you know, let's say there's five or six people in the same zip code who may match that, those browser traits. Or maybe you ask for the zip code and you ask for the birth date, and now you can just mail out you know five mailers to the five people who have the same birth date in the same zip code or whatever it is, right? So this idea that a small amount of information aggregated um, and the bigger these profiles get, of course they get more powerful, but even a small amount of information aggregated can give you insight into who someone is on the other side of the screen. Um, That was already with me when I started playing around with social media. And there were a lot of different social networks. Obviously, we had MySpace before that. um, But there were other things like Zookwa and all these other weird networks that had these different uh, incentivizing schemes for keeping you in the network. And, um, yeah, it was obvious to me that there could be a privacy issue. I wasn't fully aware of um, how things were going until the technology sort of grew up a little more. so you had a technological shift into what people started calling Web 2.0, right, um, which meant that a lot of the code was being computed um, out of the control of not just the user, but the intermediary, right? Um, so Facebook would be running things off who knows whose server, right? And there'd be these cobbled together websites with tons of different stuff shoved into them. Um so it became sort of obvious at that point, and then catalyzing moment for me, of course, um, the the Free Software Foundation was very much aware of this. Um, the Software Freedom Law Center and Evan Moglen over there um, gave a couple speeches about the issue uh, with centralized social media, which. Really what social media does is create a walled garden, right? Um, In some ways, it's not that different than what AOL was trying to do in the 90s. Um, They were more successful at it and they were able to keep people in um, much more than I thought they would be able to. So yeah, it wasn't so much about um, directly knowing exactly what the privacy practices were. It was about knowing that they weren't a trustworthy intermediary, right? That there was no reason to trust that their privacy practices were any good. Um, and then when we found out all the stuff, you know, Cambridge Analytica, et cetera, um, for me, again, it was another moment that was kind of interesting because it was like, well, you know, I mean, people who have been in the free software movement or, you know, think talking about tech privacy, electronic freedom uh, uh, foundation, et cetera, all those people were talking about these issues, um, and, uh, you know, if you're in the EFF and you don't know that Facebook is bad by, you know, 20, what year was that, 2016, um, you should have. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, uh, what I think is cool about uh, your generation is, uh, you know, you've grown up with smartphones uh, in a very real sense. Um, and we have not, right? Or we did not. And I think that does color a little differently um, your perception, at least at the start, of, um trust in, in these intermediaries again, right? When you get a phone, you get a cool iPhone, right, and you're in middle school, and you've got a bunch of icons on the desktop, you, you say, well, how bad could these things be? You know, these things are shipped in a product, they're being used by everybody, they're being used by my teachers and my administrators and
0: my parents and me, right? A, a step above that, you don't even think about those things. It's just, oh, I got a cool new gadget. Like, what, what's... Yeah, it's a new gaming console essentially for a middle schooler.
1: Yeah, so I mean, and that's something I think I have to, you know, come to grips with when I try to teach um, folks who are trying to, um, you know, have conversations with with your generation. Um, need to think about that, and you know, I'm not I'm not that old yet, but I feel old because of the pace of the internet. So.
0: <laughs> Um, well, what's interesting for me is that I'm, I'm already seeing this myself, so I have done some volunteer work where I teach uh, basic programming and cybersecurity through a Scratch to elementary schoolers. When I was in elementary school, I, bar- I was learning how to type, and I barely ever touched the computer. These kids have Chromebooks. Uh, they're in second, third grade, and they're typing in URLs like it's nothing. So they're even younger than I was using this technology, so I guess I can kind of relate there. Um, and the, um, there's a huge degree of trust, absolutely. And it, it's not something that most people think about, which is which is just odd. Um, the fact that you have second graders using Google devices all the way throughout their, their education experience, all the way through college, is just insane um, that a company can have that much control over an individual.
1: I think it's awesome that we can have the conversation now. So, um, you know, um, so I know a lot of educators. Um, I've always thought of myself primarily as an educator. Uh, I know a lot of people who teach high school and so on. And, um, you know, maybe that's just the crowd I ended up in. We we, we weren't the bad crowd. We ended up being teachers, but <laughs> whatever the case Um you know, these folks uh, are were already worried about the implementation of Chromebooks from a pedagogical standpoint, right? Um, you know, what's going to happen when I'm forced to use a cart full of Chromebooks to teach students who I'm already having issues, um, you know, keeping control in the classroom or trying to get the information across I'm getting across or some other, you know, learning disabilities and so on, right? Um, so I think there was already a worry amongst teachers about that. Um, but now we can talk about the privacy and trust issues. Um, Google doesn't quite have the shining, you know, uh, visage that it had, you know, 10 years ago where it was like, well, everything Google's doing is amazing. And look how cool the Googleplex is where all the workers get to hang out all day, you know, and all that stuff. Um, so, so that veneer is, is sort of, you know, starting to, to you know, be scratched and, and broken a little bit. I don't know what's going to happen with COVID-19, I mean, um, for the first time policies were just thrown out the window and it was, you know, okay, now you can bring home your Chromebook, um, et cetera, because they just had no way to do instruction otherwise. Um, So I think it's going to be interesting to see what that transition is, but um, what we should be talking about, the things that folks were talking about with the One Laptop Per Child project a long time ago. you know, it's great for this technology to be in the hands of young people, right? Um, but we need to think about who controls that technology ultimately and how deeply um, there there's control there. If anyone controls the, the stack, the technological stack that they implement well and strongly, I guess I would say Apple first and then Google, right? Um, Google's very good at controlling that stack. And as you know, these Chromebooks can do all amazing things, like the teaching you're talking about. Um, but I'd like to see them be running free operating systems as well, which we know they yeah. can do. Um, but in most cases, they just not. So,
0: Yeah. Agreed there. Um I guess you brought up coronavirus, and that's the second question. So how has coronavirus been affecting you and your work? And it's more of a broad question there, but I'm sure everyone's affected differently.
1: Yeah. um, So for me, uh, the realization set in more slowly um, than it should have, um, that this pandemic would be affecting not only me directly, but the country so strongly. Um, I'm in New Haven, Connecticut, um, I'm right near New York. Um, we've had a lot of cases here. We were one of the early states to have ha- a heavy amount of cases. Um, obviously, um, I'm at Yale University, we had some cases there. Um, they had to close school, you know, send everybody home very abruptly, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So all that stuff went on. Um, I think for me, um, personally you know i haven't suffered um directly yet i am very worried about people in my family who are immunocompromised um, you know, etc um but for me it's been a catalyzing moment to um sort of um reassess the work i do try to shift some aspects of that work um for example uh we organized um under the, the uh, privacy safe the organization um that i'll talk about in a little bit um, we organized something called flatten the curve summit Um, We got some great speakers to do a remote uh, conference talking about uh, COVID-19, talking about the public health impacts, um, but not only just the public health impacts, um, some of this technological uh, surveillance stuff that we all are worried about, right? So what's gonna happen with contact tracing, you know? Um, What can we expect to go on in healthcare from a technological standpoint? Um, And we got some great folks. We got uh, Luis Falcone from GNU Health. Um, talking, We got Corey Doctorow talking, we got um, Trish Greenhoud from uh, University of Oxford um, uh, talking about the remote assessment of patients, which is very cool stuff. Um, you know, obviously, if you can assess uh, at least some of the symptoms of COVID-19 and try to make a determination from a distance, it's better for the healthcare provider and better for the individual um, and really society, not spreading it, right? As much as possible, so there's a lot of very cool stuff. I guess for me, it's just it has had a, a pretty mega impact. I think we're all going to look back on this time as being, um, you know, uh, a, a pretty big catalyst for change in our lives. <laughs> um, and yeah, so it, it it has changed my work um, as far as privacy safe is concerned. Um, so privacy safe is a um, company that I started in 2019. Um, We were doing um, for-profit work where we were selling IOT devices, basically um, free and open source software with open hardware um, and trying to do cool things with it, um, such as secure storage, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, With COVID-19, we hit a bit of a wall. (laughs) A lot of small businesses did. Um, But we also, you know, we're staggering a little bit on some of our projects, right? We were doing some enterprise contracts, et cetera. And the areas we were doing them in were healthcare and education. So... um, it made sense for us um, to form a nonprofit foundation, and then to focus on remote education, to focus on healthcare, so do that work with GNU Health, um, put a hospital information system on a little decentralized single-board computer, right? Um, to work on that kind of stuff. Uh, so. Yeah, it's been a really recentering event now that I'm thinking about it, and it's only been so. I've been inside since uh, you know early March um, and uh, isolated since early March, and that's what eight weeks. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> it's kind of wild. Uh, time, time's flown. It's, it's honestly, it's felt like just two or three weeks. Time just. It, it, I feel like the the there's been a total loss of just time. This whole this whole gap. The semester's already over. It's it's insane. Um, I feel like this stuff just started just a few weeks ago. Um what are your thoughts on the contact tracing? Have you found something that doesn't that, that is promising and also doesn't invade user privacy? I know the EU tried creating one and then Germany went ahead and said that's not good, they tried making their own, and then Switzerland said they're making their own because the EU one wasn't good apparently, so it's the contact tracing just has been a complete mess. Um has there been something that you found to be promising?
1: Yeah, so um Contact tracing to me is very scary. (laughs) And I'm very worried about it for a number of reasons. But um, I've talked a little bit about this and I'll try my best not to just throw out the baby with the bathwater. I do know that um, epidemiologists and public health officials and so on, uh, you know, experts in that area are saying, look, contact tracing works, right? Um, the idea that you know where there's a cluster of people who are likely to get COVID-19 or some other disease, or you know where it's occurring and spreading, that's really, really valuable from a public health standpoint. So I don't want to poo-poo those things and you know throw them out and say they're, they're not worthwhile. However, um, the idea that we would have two of the biggest um, surveillance uh, capitalists in the history really the biggest surveillance apparatuses in the history of, of humanity, um, being in charge of this, um, Apple and Google, is very disconcerting to me, to put it mildly. Um, I do know there's some proposals that are hypothetically possible. I apologize for my birds, by the way. <laughs> it's like a little, bit, little fun in here. Um, but anyway, so... Um, Yeah, there are some proposals that can hypothetically work, right? Um, So uh, the Chaos Communication Congress, uh, the CCC, incredible tech folks in Germany know a lot about surveillance and anti-surveillance technology, of course, um, implementing secure systems, et cetera. They um, have backed a proposal more or less, said, okay, you can do it this way. Um, There's been some other groups that have shown, okay, you can do it this way. Um, Look, we know how to do voting securely. And anonymously and with verification Um, encryption of one kind or another gives us all these tools right Um, setting up a system that does uh, secure private communication that also allows the people on both ends to verify um, that they're talking to the correct person or very likely talking to the correct person that's also possible right how many of those systems do we have Um, very few in the wild, they've had to be fought for really hard, and something like uh, voting, right? Um, If we were to implement voting in the current situation in the United States or or a lot of other places um, digitally, I would not expect it to do, um, you know, real private, real secure, real, you know, anonymous, um, you know, be a real anonymous system. Same thing with contact tracing. now that all said it became very obvious to me early on that as soon as uh, google and apple um threw their hat into
0: the ring that they would just destroy all competitors and that's pretty much what they did yeah. um so i I mean it makes sense because everyone either has ios or android so if they're gonna make something that's universal it's probably the way to go right um... right
1: and so the the proposals in germany and the proposals in switzerland and uh some of the stuff i've seen on other places were pretty much thrown out um there are other places, Norway, for example, has pretty extensive contact tracing already in place. Um, they've actually worked on that for a long time. Um, I can't remember the name of the corporation, I don't want to s- screw it up, but their main national uh, cell phone corporation, it's like Norvatel or something like that. Um, they were already working in this area, in Bangladesh, um, in other parts of the world, to track disease. Um, and my understanding is that those systems have some pretty severe f- flaws from a privacy standpoint. Um, so the alternatives also, I think, are worrisome. Um, I also want to question the, um, you know, the real uh, use cases. You know, is this stuff going to actually be valuable? Is this stuff going to exactly. do what it says it's going to do? Um For me, the technology has two major flaws from a technical design standpoint. Um, The first one is that um, we already know social graphs very quickly uh, get out of control. So if I know you and you know someone and then they know someone, right? um, As you get, you know, two or three orders out, um, you already are encompassing massive amounts of people, (laughs) right? um, Who are in these social circles, right? Um, And in places like a city, major metropolitan areas which are where contact tracing hypothetically should be most um, valuable um, i'm not certain that the technology is going to be very valuable because of the amount of people that you could potentially come into contact in your day-to-day just transactional business forget about socializing right um so what it amounts to to me uh, is somebody getting a um you know warning on their phone that's gonna be about as useful as the click-through screens when when Windows first shifted to, to you know, um, user account control, right? People were just clicking through that stuff. Agree, agree, agree. Um, or, you know, ignored in some way um, because people need to go to work, right? If I have a family that I need to support um, and I'm one of the lucky people to be able to work at right now, you know, and get, get money um, and I'm afraid of losing that job, um, I'm going to have to now choose between, you know, believing this app or, you know, going to work. And I think most people are going to choose to go to work. Um, The other thing is Bluetooth technology is really wonky. So um, I've done a lot of uh, implementation on those little IoT devices. And I don't have a Beagle board around. I should have grabbed one before the interview. But anyway, a lot of people know what Beagle boards look like. We've done some Bluetooth uh, work with Privacy Safe um, for some very cool stuff, and uh, it's hard to, um, you know, uh, guess how two two devices are going to uh, come into contact with each other uh, or, or communicate with each other in a lot of cases. Um, Bluetooth is just short-range wireless, and it can be blocked by a lot of things. It can be enabled by a lot of things. So in some cases, you know, you can have Bluetooth extend out many, many yards, right, or meters. And um, in some cases, it, it will be blocked by some simple wall or refrigerator or microwave or something. And I don't want to be on a city bus with a phone that I've been... Um, forced to have or an app I've been forced to have on that phone and when the bus stops, you know, I'm considered in contact with people who are walking by the bus on the street. Um, you know, <laughs> those kinds of things are, are kind of silly to me. In a skyscraper where you've got windows, I don't see how this is going to work. You know, there's a lot of cases where I just don't, um, you know, in traffic on the freeway, I don't see how this is going to work. Um, So I think we need to question also the efficacy of the technology, not just the uh, surveillance aspects of it.
0: Yeah, Um, the the crazy, I I think that when there is um, such a big disaster or something that's happening, it's really easy for people to just hop on whatever solutions introduced. Um, We saw the same thing after 9-11. We just implemented all the surveillance technology because that was the right thing to do. Um, We're seeing the same thing now with the pandemic, right? How are we going to address this? We don't know, but we're going to throw everything we can at it. I guess it has been kind of the dangerous pattern that's been occurring recently with surveillance. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, so what I would say there, um, look, if I had the huge war chests of money um, and I had the cultural significance that both Google and Apple have in America, right, in this country which is failing miserably at its response to uh, COVID-19, is becoming a real example of what not to do worldwide. Um, You know, if I had that kind of money and power, um, I would want to not look at technology first as the solution. Um, And I think there's other ulterior motives, of course, why Google and Apple are doing this. Um, If that money was put instead into just hiring armies of people to do phone surveys, um, you know, they would probably be way more effective. Instead, we're seeing just a couple states doing that. Massachusetts, my state, Connecticut, as well. What Um, are those. I've never heard of them before. Yeah, so contact tracing traditionally is done by people just calling calling around, oh, basically. Never heard yeah. of that before. Well, so this is this is these are the traditional models, right? How how were Nielsen ratings done for television back in the day? How were, you know, there's a certain amount of science behind statistics and public surveys and, and public research that goes back at least to the turn of the 20th century. Um And you can argue about, you know, how good polling is, et cetera, et cetera. And we all know, you know, we're like, oh, what's this crap call? And we don't want to answer it or we hear it and we hang up, et cetera. But, um, you know, there are experts who do this sort of thing who are very good at figuring out models, what groups should be contacted, how to cover a lot of different uh, demographics and income groups, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and I'd rather see them try to do contact tracing and come up with ways to do it. I'm sure even there there's issues with um, data disclosure and centralization of um, information, right? Uh, We know that when information is centralized, whether it's in a paper file cabinet or not, you know, you're creating a weakness, right? And the more information that's in that file cabinet, the more it's valuable to people from a cyber criminal standpoint or to the NSA and the CIA, (laughs) you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But, yeah, not to get too off topic, um, I I do think if Google and Apple were to put their money into that, think about the impact they could have had, Um, right? Now, that's not cool and high tech, and it doesn't help their, um, you know, uh, uh, hegemony, right? Uh, they're putting this stuff in the Bluetooth stack. Um, you know, Apple already has iBeacon, which is a de facto Bluetooth uh, proximity tracking technology. Google used to have Eddie Stone, then spun that out, um, and but now is getting back into this stuff. They're going to make sure the Android stack has these contact tracing features very low um, in the operating system and very likely out of the control of users, or at least... Unless you're going to put a, a separate ROM right on your phone. And... I love Graphene OS.
0: It's, <laughs> yeah. It's how I avoid Graphene's everything.
1: Great. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Yeah, Graphene is great. I actually, I still have a phone here running Lineage. I haven't switched to Graphene. I've played around with it on another device. But um, oh, all those great. ROMs are great.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I came from Lineage too. And uh, I, I bought the 3 AXL just for Graphene. It, it's just been phenomenal.
1: Cool. But you see how you have to buy a specific model,
0: right? Exactly. Like you, you, for most people, it's just not the norm. You have to do um, most people aren't going to buy a new phone just to flash a custom ROM. It's just not the norm, and um, it's one of
1: the reasons you can't even do workshops around it, right? You know. So I've done a lot of digital self-defense workshops um, where it's like, use Tor browser. Here's how to. Do... But now that time's gone on, everybody's doing everything on their smartphones. Eventually, the question comes up. You know, what are we going to do about this problem? And I'm not going to. You know even attempt in a room full of people to try <laughs> to you know flash roms on phones et cetera. it just wouldn't work out so yeah but yeah
0: um to cycle back uh to i i guess you and your work um i don't know how many of my viewers know what yale privacy lab is so do you mind explaining a little bit about the lab what you do what the lab does what you the history and also your future plans
1: sure So uh, Yale Privacy Lab is an initiative of something called the Information Society Project. Um, That's a sort of our umbrella um, supporting group that's inside of Yale Law School. Um, So if you've heard of the Berkman Klein Center in Harvard, um, Yale ISP, uh, Information Society Project, is sort of the counterpart of that at um, Yale Law School. It actually predates it slightly, which we're very proud of. But our focus is is a little different. Um, ISP tends to be more about policy and regulation and and, and law because it's at the law school. So uh, Privacy Lab is an initiative um, that I started um, in 2017. And we were already doing uh, digital self-defense workshops, crypto parties, as we used to call them, Um, and uh, those kinds of things to show lawyers how to be more secure, um, talking to, um, you know, in the legal clinics, talking to um, people who were at risk, let's say, or just talking to each other or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we used to do that kind of work and then um, formed an official initiative <laughs> as Privacy Lab where the idea was, okay, we're gonna do that work. We're gonna do those workshops. We're gonna come up with curriculum. Um, we're going to do presentations on specific topics. So when something comes up like Cambridge Analytica, then you know, do sort of a, a teaching about it, right? You know, What are the issues here, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but also um, to do some research. Um so the first thing we did um was do some static analysis uh of android apps so we looked at android apps that um had what we call trackers in them um these are software development kits or SDKs snippets of code you can think have, of them out.
0: have have you seen um Sieg Eggelman's work with uh AppSensus what do you think of that
1: yeah, so it, all that stuff is great, right? Um, and um, f done a lot of good work in this area. Um, Exodus a group we work uh, with. There, there's a huge problem with the ecosystem, right? Um, Android apps and iOS apps also, um, are filled with a massive amount of code um, that is not controlled by the user, that is coming from all kinds of third parties, that has all of these, you know, tertiary bits and and stuff coming in from all over the place, and these dependencies and so on, and Finding that stuff, right? Uh, Tracking it using machine learning, right? Um, And those cool technologies to to figure out what's actually in an app and what the privacy leakage might be um, is an entire field basically now. and in 2017, basically, you know, it was known that this stuff was in a lot of apps, but I don't think there were a lot of universities or, or major universities or um, just places trying to bring, shine a spotlight onto um, onto the problem. So, our role was basically that, shining the spotlight on the problem. We relied on a lot of good work of others, as, as we always do, um, with free software, free and open source software, of course. Um Exodus privacy being the primary one. Um, and you can go out to exodus-privacy.eu.org uh, and check it out, uh, the amount of work they've done since then. When we first started talking about this and getting some press, uh, we got a story in the Intercept, story in Le Monde, which is a French paper, and a lot of coverage, you know, uh, internationally. Um, we were looking at about 300 apps um, and a handful of trackers, what we were calling trackers, right? Um, Now there's hundreds of trackers that have been identified um, at least uh, and thousands and thousands of apps that have been looked at. Um, so that's the kind of stuff we do. Um, right now I'm working on some very cool stuff with network analysis. Um, we were supposed to announce that. I was supposed to basically do a presentation at a conference in March um, about big tech and antitrust. Um, that was canceled or at least moved to um, October. So I expect in the fall um, I'll have another cool announcement to make. So
0: That's cool. Great stuff. Um, I, I really like what you do. I'm, I'm in a cybersecurity research lab at my university. Um, and so it's, it's really cool hearing all the privacy stuff that you do. Um, yeah, I love it. Uh, you talked about uh, the next question is about privacy safe. I was going to ask you about that, but you already touched on it. Do you have anything else you wanted to add about privacy safe that you haven't already talked about?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, I mean, we started the project to bring a full free software stack with open hardware, um, and do things like uh, decentralized secure storage, Um, We got some support in that. We're still working on the code um, for all of that, Uh, but primarily we've shifted to healthcare. Um, It makes more sense in the environment we're in, and we sort of had that on the back burner, but we moved that to the front burner. And, you know, as I said, we have a nonprofit focus now, right? We are uh, looking at doing stuff that is very strictly civically-minded, you know, education-minded, social good um, directly. So one of the things we're doing is um, remote learning. Um. So we're using a stack um, that is free software to bring classes to people um, that are, for example, digital self-defense classes. And uh, we want to have basically members uh, join the foundation. Uh, you get a certain amount of classes depending on what tier you join at. Um, the prices are all very reasonable, um, you know, $2 a month, $5 a month, $8 a month. And then you can interface directly with the... Um, with the people teaching the class with the instructors. Uh, We're also offering a matrix encrypted chat to go along with that. So the idea is, hey, there's a lot of people offering free teaching online right now, but there's also a lot of content creators and academics and and just the experts in areas that are trying to bring their content online for the first time. Um, We wanna be a place where you can bring your content, know that it's gonna be under free culture, creative commons licenses, so you own it right And the people who take the classes own it in very real sense, right um, And then also uh, we have no surveillance built into the stack. So unlike Coursera, for example, um, we are not trying to analyze our users. We're not shoving in third-party code from big tech. Um, we're not trying to you know look at their conversations or any of that stuff which a school would do or now more often bosses are doing as well, unfortunately. Um, So all that stuff we wanna kind of uh, be a a bit of an example against. So uh, if there are any content creators or folks who want to teach um, primarily right now, I wanna reach out to to them and say, hey, let's get you set up, let's get some classes in there. And then um, if folks want to see how that uh, builds, uh, we've got a few classes coming up in June and then we'll uh, keep moving throughout the summer. But I expect by the fall, we'll really have a lot of content in there, so
0: that's great um great initiative uh, I personally have tr- tried looking for uh, avenues to share go incognito our course and I've been trying to find something that's decent and I, I guess more liberating and foss and uh, udemy is what I came out with so as you know that's not not a great option um, so I'm still searching yeah
1: we, I mean Yeah, so Udemy, Cyberary, all these things are out there. And I don't think the missions are necessarily bad in these places, um, but part of the profit model that's just come up, you know, and and a lot of people are participating in it, it doesn't mean they're bad people or that the, you know, the companies are necessarily trying to be bad companies, but um, there is this idea that it's okay just to look at everything that your users do. um, And that part of your value add uh, is having that information. Um, if it's not your only value add, in some cases, a lot of that's going to shift. You know, I mean, the market's blown up completely uh, right now. Um, we're seeing for the first time some of the free culture and open source values um, being taken seriously, um, where there's restrictions on patents thrown out the window, et cetera, et cetera, and. It's because of a crisis. But I think if we can really start looking at those forms of organization seriously and trying to take that torch forward past the pandemic, um, we're going to be on better footing than we were before it. Uh, so, yeah, let's see what happens. And uh, if nothing else, we'll teach a, a bunch of people some very cool stuff and uh, move on to the next thing if we have to. So,
0: Great. I love it. And um, on the topic of, uh, I guess... Alternatives to to the main stuff to bring it back to phones. Uh, I stalked your resume a little bit uh, on your on your site, and I saw you did some work with uh, Purism in the past. So, h- what'd you do for them? How was that?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, I worked for Purism primarily in a business development, uh, sales sort of role. Um, did a little bit of marketing and so on um, from last October to to last year to to May. Um, And so I worked with them throughout some of the Librem 5 uh, work they were doing and some of the early stuff for um, the Librem 1, the uh, uh, social stack that Purism put together. Um, You know, I think I wish them all the best. Um, For me, it was time to move on to some other projects. Um, I think the community has seen uh, a a lot of other alternatives to the Librem 5 come up. Um, There's been a little bit of start stop uh, with the phone. And uh, yeah, that's no mystery to anybody, (laughs) but um,
0: yeah, I'm pre-ordered. So I'm, I'm going through it myself for, for the, for the phone.
1: Yeah. So I didn't do any direct engineering work or anything like that. I'm just an advocate and um, supporter of the work they were doing. Um, I have some skepticism about it um, to be Frank, um, but I don't, again, I think they're trying to do good work um, and it's just the implementation is a little lacking.
0: Yeah, no, um, I'm pretty much on the same boat as you are. I I want them to succeed. I I think that we should all want them to succeed. Um, There's just definitely some issues along the way. Um, And the fact that I'm seeing a $2,000 US version coming out to me is just like, whoa. Yeah, so the hardware
1: Um, business is difficult. Um, You know, one of the things with Privacy Safe, uh, we wanted to have US uh, assembly as much as possible, too, which is one of the reasons we went with BeagleBoard. um, And we're saying, hey, we're going to have BeagleBoard AI. This is a very cool platform. Um, The components are freer in a way than uh, Raspberry Pi um, is, for example. But also, you know, it's coming from the US, right? So knowing that supply chain gives you a heightened amount of security. So I do understand what they're going for there um but the price constraints also are a lot higher right when you're not relying upon what's basically slave labor in asia you know um your components are going to cost more money um so and this is something as a society we need to be frank and serious about i know i use tend to use strong language but um you know it is really an issue uh trying to sell someone on the idea of doing u.s only uh assembly, let alone manufacturing of all the components, um, was a difficult thing to do a year ago, right? Um, now things might change a little bit in that area um, with everything that's happened with COVID. What's going to be challenging and the biggest challenge that all these projects have, and they're, of course, not only what, quite aware of it, but having to expend a massive amount of effort on um, PIME64 and the rest of them as well, is um, working on the chipset. Right. Um, If you don't do your own SOC uh, system on a chip design and make sure that every component is under your control, you have a hole in your security model. And um, silicon is not pushed out in many places, right, Um, in the U.S. right now. um, There aren't many um, places that will do anything but custom work in small runs. And that amount of investment may come back, but we're talking trillions and trillions of dollars to do the kind of thing like what's happening in China. So, so yeah, it doesn't surprise me that the uh, the American only version would be priced that highly. Um, but you know, I guess the idea is if you're an enterprise and you're serious about it, I don't know.
0: Yeah, um, great, great notes. Uh, Side note, like everything you say just makes me rethink almost everything I know. So I hope that the community is able to to really appreciate the fact that you came on to do this interview. Um, Next thing, of all these projects and everything you've worked on, um, it doesn't even have to be something that you've done. What's been kind of your favorite project along the way? What's something that you just, you always look back on and think, man, that was the, the number one thing, or is it something you do today?
1: Yeah, so I, I think um, the that Android story is still, you know, the 2017 thing is still the thing that I have to come back to. And I'm, I'm always trying to not chase it, but, um, you know, want to get back to that level. Um, that was a really good example of um, working uh, with an international team um, together on something that we knew was going to be explosive. Um and trying to make sure that we told the story correctly, um, communicated with each other correctly, um, and also uh, worked with the press, which was my first experience working with with the press in that kind of way. Um, So yeah, that work was was not only um, a little technically challenging, but also uh, from a collaborative standpoint, um, hectic, but fun um, when I look back on it. Um, I also did some uh, stuff with Freedom Box Foundation, you know, I still love the work that they do there with Freedom FreedomBox, um, I worked on some of the early UI for Plinth, which is the uh, back administrative uh, back end for that, um, I look on that very fondly as well. Um, the coolest, best projects that come out, you know, I don't know. I I, I think we're starting to see some of them. Um, since you brought up the phones, I am very excited about what Pine64 is doing um, and how that stuff is hitting. I think that's going to make some massive changes um, moving forward. Um, we'll have to see, um, you know, where hardware goes and how the adoption of... The, the issue that I'm worried about and one of the reasons contact tracing is problematic is um, you know we may start seeing pressure from entities, from institutions where we have not yet seen much pressure telling us what we can run and what we need to have in our pockets to even be able to be autonomous at all, to move around the space we're in, right? Um, to go to work, to be
0: hired for a job, um, to go to school. Um, so- it's ar- it's already happening. Um, I, there was a there was a job I applied for not too long ago, which was similar to that volunteer position for elementary schools. The way that you um, as a as an instructor as a lecturer for these after school programs, the way that you signed up was through a mobile app. The mobile app required Google Play services. I couldn't I couldn't become a part of this program unless I had a separate device that supported the app. So it's already happening where you have to have either iOS or Android with running Google Play services to be a part of society.
1: Yeah, and it's unreal. And all of the workarounds, you know, I mean, they're just workarounds, right? And they work half the time, you know, and the devs are constantly playing a cat and mouse game with with Google in this example, yep. right? Um, you're 100% right. Now, we're used to that problem, right, uh, in, in, in a sense, because Microsoft, especially through the 90s and early 2000s, was so dominant. Um, we're used to the idea of being forced into these proprietary, you know, uh, ecosystems. We've come up with some clever workarounds and some ecosystems around them. And maybe you know you have a burner phone that you have to use for your job because it has Google Play services, et cetera. For me, that's bad enough, and you're you're one hundred percent right. We should be worried about that. Um, however, the thing that I'm more concerned about now is that we're going to have to use our the devices in our pockets for identification. Um, You know, there's this ID2020 project that the Gates Foundation is one of the sponsors of. Um, It's being touted as potentially a hygienic solution um, to transactions during the pandemic, but not only transactions, voting, right? Um, I'm worried that that kind of thing is going to happen too, where it's, okay, now you carry this thing in your pocket, and it's not just for one single purpose. It is the only way that you can get you know, like I said, in a bus, you know, on a train, on a plane, buy something at the store,
0: you know. You're going into like a cashless society now where cash is just irrelevant.
1: Right. So, so that sort of thing, um, you know, worries me. Um, not to get dystopian when you ask me a positive question, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it tends to be where I go. Um,
0: um, well, on the positive, I, I'm seeing more and more projects. I feel like every other month I hear about a new phone project. So I actually just, it's actually right behind me. There's uh, an e-phone. I don't know if you've heard of the e-foundation. There's a phone there that I'm reviewing. It's going to come out next week. There's Lineage OS. That's, there's tons of custom ROM projects. Daniel McKay, uh, the developer for Graphene OS, he said that he wants to create his own phone one day that's going to run with Graphene OS. Um, so the demand is there, and it seems like there's developers. I mean, obviously, Purism and Pine64. We have projects. It's just a matter of... and. and it's sad because over the years we've had so many failed projects as well. You have the Ubuntu phone. You have, um, the, Didn't Firefox make a phone?
1: Yeah, I had that phone. That was an interesting project. But, you know, I mean, it goes to show how hard these things are. Um, and also the barriers aren't necessarily... So there's a lot of... A lot of times when we talk about this stuff and we see sort of a flourishing of of this stuff, it does mean there's a demand, like you say, right? Um, And there are people out there talking about privacy enough that you can sell these products and get them in people's hands. However... The scale of implementation that's required, right, um, to get this thing to be, um, have 5% of the market share, let's say, or 1% even in a lot of cases, um, requires so much inertia um, that it can be difficult to make something sustainable. And the issue that Firefox OS had, in my opinion, um, was that they were barred from a lot of the markets that were most interested in the product. Um, so, basically, they weren't able to get U.S. carriers to support that phone at all. Um, they had some issues in Europe. Um, if you, and I did, if you can buy the phone, but then you have to s- spend hours uh, of your life on tech support, you know, talking to someone just to get it activated, right, because of some bizarre SIM rule or something that the carrier has, you know, that's where the hegemony lies. And, really, in an economics um, standpoint, we're talking about, you know uh, – markets being barred from access right we're talking about real monopolization and i think um, unfortunately if we lose that war right if it becomes okay you can buy these cool gadgets if you want to be a weirdo but you can't use them for anything really functional uh in the places where they are most likely to be uh, embraced like the united states um, then they become um, something that maybe we have in the global south Then you have issues um, with distribution and so on because you now have u.s companies trying to distribute you know um or european countries trying to distribute sort of out of their you know home markets um that stuff becomes uh uh, problematic it's the kind of thing we saw with the one laptop per child project and some of those projects in that time period when the storyline was hey you know we didn't have smartphones yet but it was if we can just get netbooks in everybody's hands, right? Um, think about how liberatory that would be. Um, and now that's sort of what we're seeing with with smartphones. Um, I'm psyched about everything that's going on. I think there's going to be a lot more work. We're going to have to support those projects. Um, and supporting them is going to be difficult. It's also going to take some diplomacy, right? Um, diversity is going to be there. There are going to be a lot of different devs and a lot of different projects working in sort of cross-purposes in a lot of ways. and um, That's the story of the Linux distro, right? You know, we're used to this with with even, you know, when people took GNU and just, you know, started modding it out, you know, and adding little pieces to it um, in the early days. So, um, we have to try not to be too, um, I don't know, we need to not go to war with each other also.
0: Um, I want to so I just have a few more questions left and they're kind of more broad questions um that I think are just applicable to all privacy people. And um I know it's probably close to an hour now, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. So feel free to go through these questions. All right, all right. Um so my first question is what are three things you'd recommend to each person as the first things they should do to reclaim their privacy for someone who's completely new to this business. <laughs>
1: Apologies for my dog. I swear he was going to be good. We had a a cat. cat, We we got
0: birds. (laughs) We got a lot of
1: animals in the house. That's one of the things that keeps me going. Can can you go back into the question? I was worried about the animal.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, So what are three things that you would tell someone who's brand new to the privacy scene that you think would be the best for them to reclaim their privacy? I know there's a million things you could talk about, but what are like the three big ones that you would tell them?
1: Sure, so ad blockers first, Um, you know, that's easy. People can install that in their browser and more often on their phones. Um, So using an ad blocker uh, in your browser or a browser that is more private. um, So the Brave uh, browser is a very good with built-in default features now. Um, If you can use that, that's a huge, goes a long way in reclaiming your privacy
0: off the bat without you doing anything passively.
1: Right, that's and the first thing I.
0: Yep, it's based off Chromium too. It's it's such. I've switched over so many people I know to Brave because I just tell them, look, it's the same thing as Chrome, it's just better and it's faster. It's yeah, I, I like Brave a lot. It's just a great out of the box solution.
1: Yeah, and I initially had some skepticism about the uh, the Brave attention token and sort of that yes. thing, but. Um it is what it is and if that's their way of monetizing and keeping the platform going then then they
0: are well luckily that's still the def- it, by default it is off that's kind of i do have concerns in the long run though i have a feeling they're going to integrate that more into the browser we're already starting to see things like the Binance widget um, and you have the cryptocurrency wallet built into the browser as long as everything can be disabled i'm happy but i guess the long term concern is that they're going to start integrating those things more and more
1: yeah, and thankfully it's free software, right? So um, whatever features are there, you know, since it basically is Chromium, hypothetically you can get spinned off if something goes on, but these companies are gonna have more and more pressure put on them, to put it mildly, to monetize. And uh, you're gonna see a lot more, um, I mean, that's a business development alliance, right? Between Binance and, and Brave. And it makes a lot of sense for both of them, um, but it can be a turnoff for folks who are not into blockchain, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Um, yeah. Sorry to interrupt uh, the, yeah, the three things. That's the whole
1: point of the conversation, not just me me talking, man. So n- not a problem. Feel free to. I tend to go off on a thought train. But um, yeah, so uh, ad blockers, uh, the first one. Um, the second thing that I ask people to do is uh, download and install Tor Browser. Um, so uh, Tor Browser on the desktop and now also Tor Browser on, on Android um, are uh, a huge step forward for anybody who wants to not only be more private and actually anonymous, but to think about privacy and have sort of a concept that another world is possible. Um, Now that step, as I'm sure you know, um, is not as simple. Uh, You drop somebody into Tor and they pull up Google and it's got, you know, uh, check, you know language text on it you know or cyrillic characters or something you know and folks are in, in the us at least are very baffled by this we're not even used to you know bilingual stuff really um so that can be an issue um and uh you've got to show folks that you've got to be like well you might have to click through a million captchas if you're using you know, Horrible. those, Horrible. those <laughs> and also potentially a privacy risk right um You know, I'm glad some people are actually talking about CAPTCHAs as a little bit of a sidebar as the privacy risk that they potentially are. But also, I don't want to be training Google's AI. (laughs) You know, uh, I don't want to have to do that just to authenticate myself. Um, It's just nonsense. But anyway, so Tor Browser, I push Tor very hard. Um, I think there's a good reason to also push Tor... um, A, because they need the support, right? So, unfortunately, they had to um, let some people go, right? Yeah, that was Um, sad. And that's what's going to happen. You know, uh, we're going to see some of the organizations that we rely upon for a lot of the infrastructure. I mean, how many projects in the privacy and security sphere rely on Tor in some way? Um, I know the stuff we were doing for privacy safe, and we are going to continue doing, but um, in a little bit of a different way, um, we're going to do onion uh, addressing, right? Uh, Hidden services uh, slash onion services, and um, without Tor and and good infrastructure behind Tor and good improvements and patching, right? Um, Tor becomes untenable. Um, It is something that requires, at this point, quite a bit of infrastructure to keep running, but also experts to keep working on it. Um, So anyway, they're going to need support. So it's good to show people Tor for that reason as well. And also, obviously, if you can, um, get people to use technologies like, you know, Onion Shares, a pretty good way, (laughs) a really good way of sending stuff over the network worldwide, um which you can use in conjunction with tor browser so add blacker first Tor next yep
0: i i I love that tip because um something i'm a big proponent for is the normalization of tor because there's such a negative connotation with it which is oh, it's this evil uh, illegal dark mysterious place when in reality when you boot up the tor browser it's just like any other browser and if you want to access onion services then there's that option as well um i think the the one thing to add to your second point is that people also need to know Just because you're using Tor doesn't mean you're anonymous, right? If you're logging into a Google account, that's your personal Google account that you normally log into in your normal browser through Tor, it's not really doing you any good. Um, So it's more so a matter of understanding how Tor works and how you can offload things that otherwise would be personally identifiable to this anonymity browser.
1: From a pedagogical standpoint, right, from a teaching standpoint, that's why it's so useful because now you can say, you can hold that against the Facebook and say, you know, up the two things next to each other and say, well, okay, Facebook's tracking you, (laughs) you know, even using this cool stuff that obfuscates your information in this awesome way, right, if you go to this website and you log in, they're building profiles on you, you know, and those demographic profiles are going to be, you know, still following you. Um, And they're going to know you're using Tor, right, Um, which may also put you in some other bottle or some other category that, um, you know, they have on the back end and share with third parties, et cetera, et cetera. It's very useful from that standpoint. Um, Of course, built into Tor browser now as a default search engine is is DuckDuckGo, um, which... I haven't used Google in a really long time, (laughs) so uh, and when I do, I I I use it through DuckDuckGo. So um, you know, yeah, exactly. The the bang the uh, exclamation point G, Um, and that's very useful. And I get so used to it when I'm not on my machine. Like I'm trying to search Wikipedia, and I do exclamation point W. You know, I'm like, oh crap.
0: (laughs) It's a great feature. Um, it's it's grown on me too. I recently so. Maybe I'm biased because um, I started interning for Startpage. Um, so I'm doing some like creative content for them. And the I miss the bang feature. So I, I've moved them to my ser- default search engine just because, obviously, I get to talk to their engineers. And now I trust them the most personally. And <laughs> I miss the bang. That's the one thing I keep pushing. It's like, when can there be bangs? Because sometimes even Startpage, what you learn about Startpage is even though they supply Google results... It's still not as good as when you use google.com because Google adds another layer of personalization. And the personalization is really the secret sauce here. It's not really... Sure, Google results are the most indexed and they might be the most um, the best in general, but that's not really why Google results are so good for the end user. It's all the personalization that goes into the search, which makes Google just a phenomenal search engine.
1: Yeah, but conversely, I will say, that filter bubble, right, um, is exactly. a problem, right? Yeah. Um,
0: and that's why Page is nice for most... Searches, at least for me, or if you use the DuckDuckGo Gbang. bang Yeah.
1: Yeah, StartPage is great. Um, Quant is another one that I think is mm-hmm. reasonably good. Um, I don't know a whole lot about it. Um, but uh, from what I can tell, they seem to be doing good things. Search engines are a hard thing to do in a decentralized way, but there are a couple projects
0: to do that as well. Uh, search.me. Search. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, I saw different pronunciations. The the X can be pronounced with like a ch sound in certain languages, so it's just search.me. I don't know. It's whatever makes like happy. A, like
1: a Kai character in Greek or something, too. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, awesome. So, anyway, uh, yeah. So, cool stuff. So, Tor Browser, and that it already introduces them to all, all those concepts, right? Um, and when I tend to do, uh, in workshops or class, uh, Tor Browser, we also do browser fingerprinting. Um, so, we'll compare Tor Browser against, you know, just... Vanilla Firefox and show the difference um, in the browser fingerprint. And you can do that with the EFS uh, Panopticon, um, uh, Panopti- Panopticon, click, thank you, .eff.org. Yeah. Um, so that's a very useful thing. So that's the second thing to our browser, and it, it I guess it has a lot of mini little subtasks in it. Um, and the third thing um, I've been trying to do more and more um, is getting folks to use FDroid on Android. Um, and even if we have a lot of ios users in the room and uh we tend to um especially i found at, at universities or elite universities like yale you know you'll have a lot of folks with apple products in general um even if they have ios and they don't have android so they can't use f droid which is the alternative free software um app store everything's free in it for gratis as well um but you know we still call them app stores because that that wording has just become part of the lexicon, but um, anyway, uh, it it allows me to talk about some of the issues with um, centralization and ownership of the software delivery mechanism, right? Um, So on an iPhone, we know that the App Store is trusted by a lot of Apple users, (laughs) puppy, I had a cat before yelling. Um, I'm going to get a studio, I swear, at some point, or at least set one up. That's
0: I need one, too, man. It's, it's hard recording videos and having to take down the lights every time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: um, but anyway, um, it allows us to talk about those issues, right? So we can say, hey, you know, um, software delivery, if it was done this way, right? If you had somebody actually being able to audit your apps down to the source code every time, Um, search them automatically for trackers, right? So one of the things about X's Privacy is that all the tracker signatures that go into X's Privacy, the ones we did at uh, Yale Privacy Lab, but also ones that they do and ones submitted by third-party researchers or just users, um, all those tracker signatures, every app in F-Droid is checked against. So you know if a tracker has been identified, it's not going to end up in that app that's in F-Droid. So... It allows me to sort of talk about that, talk about the tracker work, et cetera. Um, Unfortunately, unless you have Android users in the room, it can tend to be a little, um, you know, difficult to go through. Um, But, you know, I mean, it does need to be talked about. It is the primary way an Android user can free up their phone. Even if they're unable to remove Google services, they can at least start using these other apps. Um, Versions that are in the Play Store many times don't... um, uh, they're not always in the the Play Store either, but um, when there are two versions of them, the F-Droid version is guaranteed not to use the Google Play stuff, um, yeah. which is huge. Um, so uh... and,
0: and that brings up a good point to my audience. If you are because so many people leave comments when I talk about lineage or graphene that they're on a locked bootloader. Even if you're on a locked bootloader and you're using Google Play services, you can still use third-party app stores like F-Droid. There's nothing stopping you. Android allows you to do that. It's great. It's not like iOS where everything is locked down. So, just FYI. Yep. Um, what do, how do you feel about Aurora? Aurora. Obviously, so, in F-Droid, there's an app store called Aurora, which will oh, yeah, anonymously... Yeah. yeah. Um, personally, I use it because, for example, um, I have a Garmin that I use for running. I'm a big big runner, and I have to use Garmin Connect. Well, I don't have to. The cool thing with the watch is you can actually keep everything local on the device, um, but... I guess I like to consider myself a more advanced athlete (laughs) and I have to use the app to get all the full details of all my runs and everything like that. And Aurora is just magnificent in how it gives you an anonymous Google account that you log into and you can download all free apps from the Google Play Store. Obviously, ideally, I get 99% of my apps from the F-Droid Store, but it's great to get those Google Play alternatives um, for apps that will sometimes work without Google Play services. Yeah, so um, what I use is the Yelp Store. Um, Aurora's forks from Yelp actually It just adds a cool front end Which is, yeah
1: Yeah, so I saw Aurora recently when I was looking for stuff There's another one too I'm trying to think of the name of um, That has a fancy front end um, But I could swear there was some sort of pay model with it um, It doesn't matter But anyway, yeah, all those things are great The issue is, of course, this is all on Google's good graces For having an authenticator token um, That's true with cly Which is the command line Um client where you can download an APK directly from Google Play on on your desktop. Um, So when we do static analysis, right, and we want to look at an Android app, we'll download directly from Google Play as much as we possibly can. Um, That way we have the hash of the file and we can verify 100% that this is the version of the APK that Google is distributing. Um, But we can only do that um, using this token system um, where you don't have to log in using a Google Play account. And I don't know how long that's going to be around. And I know those devs that have worked on this stuff, they've had a lot of hiccups. Um, Even in now, using the Yelp store for however many years, it's been around four or five years, um, there's been times where it just doesn't work and I go to go to GitHub and say, oh, geez, Google broke the authentication again, (laughs) you know. Um, So it's a problem. Um, Android's weird that way, though. I mean, I do think, uh, and this is obviously a sidebar, but for folks who are modding their phone, it's good to know. Um, I do think some of these alternative um, locations, APK, Pure, and so on, um, as long as you can verify that the hash is identical to the original um, APK that's in Google Play, um, there's no reason not to trust the file. Um, and you usually can get the APK from somewhere. But um, yeah, more and more of those apps are, even an app that doesn't actually require play services. Like you can look at the app and you can see, okay, it has these hooks in it, but it's not doing anything with, with um, you know, GCM or Firebase or any of these things. Um, they, they still will bark at you and say, well, this is required to use this app. Um, and I've had that happen to me a lot, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, it's it's one project I'm, It's a long-term project. This is not something I'm planning on doing anytime soon. But I'm trying to find a way um, to build some kind of FOSS app that will scan the person's phone. And then a person can pretty much write in, and it's a community-sourced, it'll write in what apps do and don't work with and without Google services. Because a question I constantly get is, will this app work without Google Play services? Will Spotify work? Will this app work? And there's really no way to verify Uh, unless you just ask people like hey does this app work for you and then people have to go and try it out um and it's really fun actually seeing what apps do and don't work right so um the garmin connect app for example everything works perfectly magically somehow like the bluetooth syncing works um everything loads properly the only thing that doesn't work is you can't load maps of your runs because obviously it uses google maps um the tesla app works (laughs) magically you can connect to a car no issues. Um, but you can't use Google Maps to summon the car into the parking lot and do all those fancy, crazy features that are just insane. Yep. Um, and some apps, they give you warnings that you can't use this app without Google Play services, yet you just click OK and just use the app like normal, and there's absolutely no need for Google Play it. services. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. So Those the example I guys. would
1: recommend to you for that, um, and it's a little old-fashioned, I'm sure there's a much better way to do it with an app and a REST API and all this stuff to let people report easily from their phone, but um, CodeWeavers, which is a company that's more or less behind a lot of the work, uh, dev work that's done on Wine, um, the uh, not-an-emulation <laughs> Windows layer oh, um, <laughs> in uh, in uh, uh, GNU Linux, um, so Crossover Office is the commercial product that CodeWeaver sells, which is a modified version of Wine. Um, but they have a database, CodeWeaver's has one, where they rate um, apps saying how well they're going to run on Crossover Office. Oh. Um, and it's, it's, you know, gold, platinum, bronze, and then stars, and then user comments, and so on. And it has all the differences in the versions. It's just crowdsourced information.
0: Um, that's really cool to know, thank you, because I I haven't actually really looked into it because like I said, it's a long-term project, but that's probably a great starting point.
1: And you know what, it doesn't have to be over-engineered in the beginning, maybe just doing, you know, setting up a wiki very quickly and seeing if there's interest, and if there is interest, trying to get somebody to develop the app, you know, is the way to go as well. So.
0: That's not a bad idea, I just set up, I, I know I get backlash for using it, but um, I just set up GitHub for, for posting some of my stuff. Um, so maybe just setting up a quick GitHub repo for that wouldn't be a bad idea.
1: Yeah. In the world we're in, I mean, GitLab, obviously, um, a lot of folks have switched to because of the non-Microsoft, um, situation and you can do self-hosting and so on. But I mean, GitHub is so common as a platform. I do think if you want to engage with a wide swath of users, you're going to have to
0: have something there. Exactly. And obviously what I post is public information. So the, the privacy concern of Microsoft is kind of, it's public so not to not so the three things sorry this question got a really um crazy that's good so the three things uh, ad Ad blocking blocking, a browser browser, and then after i would say after so so tor browser and after so those are the three sean o'brien approved tips for for privacy noobs yeah,
1: I'll add that real quickly. If I had to do, and I used to do like a 30-second TLDR, um, I would talk about alternative social networking like Mastodon. Um, and that's easy because you can just throw somebody the link and they can decide what they think of it, um, more or less. Um, and then I used to do Jitsi Meet quite a bit. Um, you know, say, hey, you can do video conferencing, you know, without using these other things. Now the situation is a bit more complicated. Um, I do like Big Blue Button a lot. Um, which is what we're using this at this moment, um, you know, so maybe the conversation would be a little longer, but uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Signal too. Signal's great.
1: Absolutely. I used to have more caveats about it
0: than I currently have, but yes. <laughs> um, two more questions. And I, th- I think these will be a little bit shorter than the last one. Um, so the first one is what's your biggest fear as a privacy advocate? Are you more worried about and I think I kind of got some insight based on our conversation. Are you more worried about companies like Amazon, Facebook, Apple, and Google, or are you more concerned about issues related to government surveillance, or do you have something totally different that you're concerned about or kind of all of the above? just what are your concerns
1: yeah so that's a that's a tough question because uh these are public private surveillance. Uh, projects, right, partnerships that these, that go on. Um, I think if you looked at my writing and a lot of the work that I've done, um, you know, I, I do a lot of interviews with, you know, WikiLeaks groups and so on. You probably would assume that um, government surveillance is the thing that I'm most concerned about, um, but I just, I kind of see um, institutions that are as large as big tech and all the Sil- Silicon Valley, you um, groups as being part of that same apparatus right um so i I don't want to necessarily artificially separate those two things i suppose dragnet surveillance by governments is still more worrisome um, for a lot of reasons um partially because those institutions are also um, destabilizing the globe uh, via cyber war right um so you know the nsa and the cia also have a role you know in creating a massive amount of instability um, worldwide and some really scary situations by doing things like trying to attack um, not always just enemies but sometimes allies um, trying to get information or break systems etc cetera, et cetera.
0: wasn't Japan a, a country that they could wipe out the entire power grid the NSA
1: um, yeah so I don't know about that specifically but I would it would not surprise me um, two things to say about this of course um, you know the the government the military industrial complex and the intelligence organizations that are attached to it right um they have contingency plans for everything um so it doesn't necessarily mean that tomorrow you can flip a switch and turn off japan's electric maybe it does but in this case like i said i need to look into it but um it does mean that there's a plan to do that if if the situation calls for it whatever that means right um but the other thing is you've got folks who are actively involved in um you know, sort of these small cell groups, right? Um, so if you're a part of the CIA's um, um, group, which I'm trying to think of the name of, the one that was responsible for the infiltration um, in Vault 7, if you followed the Vault 7 and Vault 8 stuff a few years ago. Okay, so a few years ago, um, it came to light um, that uh, basically... All of the hardware and software that the world relies on for their infrastructure was pwned in some way. Um, it either had purposeful bugs inserted um, by the NSA or CIA or both into it, um, backdoors, for example, um, or it uh, had uh, there were active attacks against it. Um, So Cisco routers could be taken down that were used in pretty much everywhere. Um, Firefox browser had some vulnerabilities. A lot of these were Windows-based, right, Um, but some of them weren't. Um, Some of them were on GNU Linux systems and and Macs and so on. Um, There were a lot of attacks against iPhones. There were a lot of attacks against um, Android and so on. This cache of information um, was disclosed by WikiLeaks, and WikiLeaks responsibly went through it. Um, described the attacks without disclosing the code first and then eventually disclosed most of the code as well um, after this stuff was patched. Um, So that's a really scary example to look back on for the folks who may not be aware of it, Vault 7 of nation state kind of um, trying to um, destabilize uh, the technical infrastructure that we rely upon for everything. Another example which is somewhat Uh, related um, is the eternal blue uh, weakness that was in Microsoft Windows networking that led to all the waves of ransomware, right? Um, That almost certainly, um, besides the NSA actually admitting that they did it, we know from all kinds of evidence that the NSA was actually responsible for inserting that backdoor. Um, And they had so-called weaponized it, right? So you've got these cells, these groups of um, technologists who are working in the NSA, in TAO, um, Tailored Access Operations is the name of the group. And um, they're coming up with not only uh, the back doors, but they're coming up with the exploits, and then they're making them really easy to command and control from a distance. So now you can have a relatively unskilled operative that maybe was trained up in a couple months, and they can click around some interface, and they can attack some country, basically, uh, with cyber war. Um, But even if that doesn't happen, you know, information wants to be free, the old adage, right? Um, A lot of this stuff leaks out. In this case, it leaked out through a group called the Shadow Brokers. They disclosed um, the exploits, um, and and we ended up with this huge wave of problems we're still dealing with right uh, ransomware seems to keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back, and so I suppose in a very real like, am I worried about you know us ending up in nuclear war or some crazy thing happening you know internationally um, beyond the crazy instability that we see now with COVID nineteen? Um, I am more worried about nation state actors in that sense. For personal privacy, um, you know, I think dragnet surveillance is something at least at the moment, that I think I'm able to realistically um, mitigate against. Uh, Targeted surveillance. uh, I don't know how important anyone thinks I am at the moment, but, um, you know, if I am important, you know, I'm not going to be able to stop targeted surveillance from nation state groups. But it's pretty easy for me to stop Google from spying on me if I know what to do. Um, It's pretty easy for me to stop a lot of those things. so, yeah, I don't know. I don't have an easy answer, but let's just say I'm more worried about nation states <laughs> spoken, spoken like, like a true professor. professor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm um, sure it's I'm uh, not good with concision, basically. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, the I I love the thorough answers, so it it's great. It's better than just a simple like I like this better, I like that better, or this is worse than this. Um And to end things on a positive note, I just thought this was a funny question. I think I already know the answer here, but what's your um, operating system of choice?
1: Sure, so I'm using Debian, uh, which is a GNU Linux um, distro. Um, I've used Ubuntu quite a bit and done a lot of installs of that as well. Um, Debian, uh, for me, is still the thing that's closest to my heart in a lot of ways. Um, I try not to create distro wars, (laughs) uh, but I like the um, the fact that there's a real community um, behind Debian, which some other distros don't necessarily have. Um, and uh, obviously, the package management and so on gives you a wide variety of software, which can be hard to find anywhere else. Um, we are starting to see some some changes in you know how that's operating with the Snap Store and so on, and um, uh, Gnome shipping their stuff. Um, why can I think of it at the moment? <laughs> the, the whole thing they're doing um, with with uh, one one-click installer, um, but yeah, Debian still to me is uh, closest I think to my heart. Um, my desktop environment, if anyone cares, I've been using Mate or Mate uh, because it's it's old-fashioned. I'm a little old-fashioned on that. So
0: <laughs> hey, I, I'm sure I, I used Debian for a while too. It, it's it's very stable. Never had it break anything like that. Um, to great OS,
1: I've screwed it up. I have screwed it up
0: before. Oh, you you have you have to screw up every Linux sister. That's just how it goes, right? Right. <laughs> um, but that's all I had to say uh, for this interview. So, if you have any last comments, um, this is, I guess, the the time to speak. But that's all I really have on my end for you.
1: Cool. So thank you uh, very much. This is great. And, uh, you know, for your audience, check out the stuff we're doing at privacysafe.tech. Privacy um, it will grow and enlarge and be awesome, you know, uh, but in the beginning, you know, we need your support as well. So if you want to check out some cool stuff, if you don't mind hearing me speak, especially, you know, the first few classes, we'll be doing digital self-defense. Um, so it should be pretty awesome.
0: That's great. No, thank you all for, thank you for all of your hard work. Um, I absolutely love um everything that yale privacy labs and, and yourself posts on twitter and yeah it's just wonderful um thank you all for your hard work and all your contributions you've had to the to the whole privacy community and also i'm just grateful that i'm even in a position where i get to talk to someone like you so it's just great to have this community so i guess thanks to the community there as well um and i hope that the community takes a lot out of this interview because this isn't just something that you get to to hear every day so thank you for your all of your great great words
1: Yeah, you're very welcome. And I guess just one more thing quickly, since you brought it up. Yeah, uh, Yale Privacy Lab, we're also doing very great work there. I don't (laughs) want to, you know, subsume that. Um, You're going to see a lot more of us out of the fall. You know, I mean, things have been kind of, uh, for, as everyone knows, the last couple months have been a bit tumultuous. So some of the things we were doing were a little nipped in the bud, Um, but we're actually working so you know i've got a call um tomorrow where we're going to be working on this stuff and we're going to work all summer so what we were going to do in the fall uh in the spring is going to be that much better in the fall so stay tuned for that as well i'm excited
0: um that's all i have to say um so goodbye community have a great day and give a like below if you like this video and make sure to subscribe um i'll see you guys in the next video